If you would, please open God's Word with me to Philippians chapter 2 this morning. I'm going to begin reading in Philippians 2, verse 5. As I read this text, God is addressing you. God Himself is speaking when His holy and inerrant Word is proclaimed. So listen to the Word of the Lord addressed to you this morning. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be asserted or grasped, but emptied himself or made himself nothing, taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. In verse 12, the Apostle Paul reacts to a statement in verse 11 about Jesus being Lord. And as he reacts to that, he wants the church to react to that by working out their salvation. And that doesn't mean earning your salvation. That means cultivating your salvation. And when you cultivate a garden, you do so so that it would bring forth the fruit of what's down deep. That's what he's saying in that text. That's what God is calling us to do in light of this text. We are to work out, manifest to the world that Jesus is Lord in the church. But Paul doesn't start there in that thought process. He started earlier in an illustration in verses 6 through 8 that spoke about Christ's humiliation. Now this, is, this is an awe-inspiring text. 6 through 8 should make you tremble. When you recognize what God himself has done to save you, you should react with humility, thanksgiving, and the pursuit of unity in the church. He's talking about the death of our Lord Jesus who took on human flesh to become like us, to live our life for us because we could never obey God's commands on our own. So Christ comes into the world to do that in our place by living like us in every way as a human, as a slave. And he dies the most ignoble death possible on a cross. And it was a humiliating death. Jesus was stripped naked before the crowd of people, including his own mom, beaten and bludgeoned, hung upon a cross where only the despised would hang. 
And all the world around him said he's cursed. And then God the Father was silent as his curse fell upon Christ instead of us. Church historian Professor Carl Truman wrote about that. He wrote this. Based upon rational empirical inquiry, one would have to say that the man on the cross is a filthy criminal of some kind. The cross is a disgrace, both by the standards of Roman law and Jewish, Jewish custom. And thus the one upon whom such a punishment is inflicted must be the lowliest kind of criminal imaginable. In addition, one would have to say that he is broken, crushed, defeated. As he dies on the cross, we see no king, no victory over sin, no cause for rejoicing or glorifying the one who hangs there. The eyes of reason, judging on the basis of what we as humans expect, would have to see that scene as one of darkness, pain, and deep personal tragedy. But, but God, right? But God would exalt this humble one. That's what we're going to see in our text. Professor Truman goes on to write, what we have on the cross is not the defeat of a criminal, but the triumph of the king of glory. Not the victory of the powers of evil, but the victory of good over evil. Not the hopeless curse of God, but the blessing of God by which all may be saved. Close quote. Now, as I read this quote this week, I began to really think about this text that we've just read through and we've been going through for a few weeks. And if, if Professor Truman is correct in his assessment of Christ's humiliation and his exaltation, it should affect us, should it not? It should affect us personally, and it should affect us practically, and it should affect us corporately. And that's exactly what Paul is arguing throughout this chapter in Philippians. He started off the argument in Philippians 1.27. We'll look at that in just a moment. But he ended the argument in verse 8 by saying that, that if this Lord of glory humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even a death on a cross for us, then this truth should transform our manner of life. That's the crux of the matter in this book here. I think that Philippians 1.27 is the key to the entire book. And the Apostle Paul tells us that our manner of life should be transformed by the gospel of Christ. Look what it says there in Philippians 1.27. And let me just take a side note for a second. If your manner of life isn't transformed by the gospel of Christ, let me ask you to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Have you repented of your sins? Have you trusted in this one who was humbled in your place and then exalted because of his faithfulness and his accomplishments? And if you have not repented and believed, today is the day of salvation so that your life would bring glory and praise to this one who was exalted as our Savior. 127 says this, 
Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, and like if I, if I don't show up, I still want to hear this testimony. That's what he's saying. I want your manner of life to show the true value of the gospel. That's his point. So that whether I show up or whether I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents this is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have He's saying the manner of life that you live should stand up under all of this. It should be changing you personally and corporately and then practically as you go into chapter 2, verse 1. He says, so if there is any encouragement in the gospel, in Christ, any comfort from the love of Christ, any participation in the spirit of Christ, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. The humiliation and the exaltation of Christ should affect us in these ways. It should affect us personally, practically, and corporately. So when we come to verse 9, what we see happening is Paul kind of taking a step back for a moment. And he shifts from the illustration that we see in verses 6 through 8 of what it looks like to personally and practically be affected by the humiliation of Christ. Christ himself was humbled in our place to save us. And he moves from that illustration saying that we should live like our Savior. We should follow his example. He moves from the illustration to a reaction. He begins to shift here by, by using the phrase therefore in verse 9. Therefore or, or since. Why is the therefore therefore? It's therefore to, to put you back into the text and say since Jesus willfully humbled himself for our salvation, we should react to God the Son's humiliation. We should react to God the Son's work in the church. So what is the proper reaction to Jesus' humiliation? That's what we need to ask ourselves. Or you need to ask yourself, how do you react to the gospel? Is it something that you just said? Something that you just ritually went through in your mind? Or is it something that transforms your life daily as you contemplate the love of God that's in Christ? Christ who came to this earth to die in your place. How do you react to that practically? Personally? Does it cultivate humility in your heart? Does it cultivate love for others in the church? Above yourself? Does it cultivate corporate fellowship? Corporate evangelism, corporate joy when you come together with the saints? What's the proper reaction to Jesus' humiliation? I think we could look here in this text at 9 through 16 or so, especially 9 through 11, we could see God's reaction to Jesus' humiliation. 
We can see God the Father's reaction to God the Son's willful humiliation. In 9 through 16, that's what we learn. We, we learn, if you look at your outline, we learn how God the Father reacts to Jesus' willful humiliation, Jesus' joyful submission, and Jesus' eternal condition or revelation. I couldn't decide which one of those to put in there. Either one would work. Because God does react to the eternal revelation of Christ. And I think we should respond and react to these things likewise. Eventually, everyone will react like God does, whether they want to or not. Some unto salvation, some unto damnation, but all will bow at the name of Jesus. Paul expects, as we read this text, as the Philippians would read this text, this letter, he expected that the death of Jesus would produce a Christ-exalting reaction in the church. That's my desire this morning. So, in Philippians 2, 9a, we're going to break verse 9 up into two pieces. In verse 9a, we see that, number one, God reacts to Jesus' willful humiliation in verses 6 through 8. He reacts with exaltation. Remember, Jesus willfully humbled himself. He became nothing, took the form of a slave. He took the lowliest form imaginable humanly. He didn't exalt his own glory at that time here on earth. But God the Father raised him up, according to this text. Therefore God, speaking of God the Father, has highly exalted him. Now, now the words highly exalted is actually a translation of one word in the Greek. And that one word in the Greek means this, if you expand it and look at it in its fullness. It means to exalt to the highest possible rank and power. It is the superlative. It is the most preeminent word. It's the most preeminent place. He is given the name that is above all names, the highest rank, highest title. That's what he's saying here. God the Father took the one who willfully humbled himself to become the lowliest and raised him to the highest for his willful submission, his willful intercession, his willful sacrifice. Verse 9a reveals that, that due to Jesus' willing humiliation, God the Father has graced him. He's favored him. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. If anyone pleased the Father, it was the Son. And the Father graced him with unique honors that only belong to Jesus. And his, his title in these unique honors reveals His glory. He elevates the God-man here. Jesus Christ, who took on flesh, God the Son who took on flesh, has now been elevated in the flesh to the highest rank imaginable. The God-man, Jesus is exalted to the highest positions in all eternity. He is the interceder. He is the judge. He is the rewarder. He is exalted as the interceder of God's people because Jesus himself is acquainted with our grief. When he took on flesh, he knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to, to face life here on planet Earth. 
So God has exalted him to the position of the great high priest, the interceder of God's people, according to Hebrews 7. Turn there with me. Hebrews 7, 23. The writer of Hebrews says this, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, speaking of Jesus, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He's eternal. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives. He's eternal. He always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have, a, have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Jesus has been exalted as the high priest, the interceder of God's people, and he can do so because he understands our griefs, but he can also do so because he is eternal. He will never cease in this work. The high priest in the Old Testament ceased at death. Jesus intercedes for you eternally. He'll never cease. He cares about his people. He's acquainted with our frailties. He was also given the highest position as judge over all mankind, according to John, John's Gospel, John 5, 22. He is exalted as the judge of mankind because Jesus himself, Jesus' righteous life, is the standard of all justice. He is righteous and holy, and he fulfilled all of God's requirements in the flesh for us. Therefore, he has fulfilled the standard by which God judges all men, so he can judge us righteously. According to John 5, 22, Jesus himself says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Now, if that isn't a statement that testifies to Jesus' own claim to deity, I don't know what is. If you honor the Father, you're going to have to honor the Son because we're equal. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, where? Here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him, the Son, Authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus himself is the judge who calls all men into account. He calls them from the grave, and they come. And they come to be judged by the righteous king, who is Lord. He is exalted to that position because of his humiliation. He is also exalted to the position of the rewarder of God's children. 
That's distinct from his judgment of all mankind. He is the rewarder of God's children because Jesus himself has earned the reward for us. See, this is great. This is good news. He's going to give us a reward that he earned. That's God's grace. And Jesus is the one who will give out the praise for his own accomplishments as they are reflected in his people. According to 2 Corinthians 5.10, it says, For we must all appear before the Bema seat, or judgment seat. It actually means a seat of rewards. It's the same position that you see at the Olympics when that, they have the, the people who come to receive their rewards, their medals. It's not a place of judgment in the sense that they're being judged and penalized. No, it's a place that they're being rewarded based on what they have done. And now here's the good news. Based on what Christ has done, we are being rewarded by the resurrected Son of God. We'll all be appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Wow. He has this position as rewarder, as judge, as interceder. But here it says, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now listen, when you stand at the Bema seat, you're not, you're not going to be standing there in fear and trembling. You're going to be standing there in anticipation and joy because Jesus has done the work for you. He has won the prize for you. That's what motivated you in life, personally, practically, and corporately, to gather together and magnify his name because of his humiliation. He is the one who works out God's will in us and through us. He's cultivating it, and he wants it to be displayed. That's what Philippians 2 is telling us. His willful humiliation, according to this text, his willful humiliation has made a way for humble sinners to be rewarded. So, how should we react to that? How should we respond to Jesus' exalted position? We should respond with a humble reaction. We should personally react to Christ's humility here personally in the church, in our life. Our reaction to Jesus' work should, should affect our manner of living, our lifestyle. Is Jesus Lord? I didn't ask you if he was, he was your Savior. Because if He is your Savior, He is your Lord. He's Lord no matter what. But if He's Lord because He saved you, you will want to live in such a way that you would magnify His greatness throughout the earth. And that starts in the heart. We need to ask ourselves, what is our personal reaction to Christ's willful humiliation? According to to Philippians 2.12. This is my sub-point on your outline if you have that. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. Now, obedience starts in the heart. You know, there's a lot of times I want to obey and, and I struggle in obedience yet my heart longs, like in Romans 7, to do what is right. Okay? We all know that Paul was struggling there with what he wanted to do, but what his sin in him wanted to do, and there was a battle waged there in his flesh. But he says, you, 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 as a result of what Christ has done, you always want to obey. So now, 
not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, cultivate, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, with reverential awe. That's what he's saying. Reverential awe should mark out the way we approach sanctification. And it starts by being in awe in our hearts personally over what Christ has done for us through his humility. When, when you get a glimpse of what Christ has done for us in his own incarnate work, it should humble your attitude in the church. It should humble your attitude in your family, in your life. The gospel should cultivate evidential humility in us if we are truly saved by God's grace. Is, is the gospel, ask yourself, is the gospel of Christ evidential through your life? Ask yourself that. And then test yourself. Examine your heart. According to Philippians 1, or Philippians 2, rather, verses 1 and 2. Examine yourself. Test yourself up against this text. Is, is this is this what your heart looks like personally? Are you, are you humbly reacting to the gospel this way by encouraging others, by comforting others, by seeking the good of others, having the same mind of Christ, having the same love of Christ? Is that, is that what your life is marked out by? The humiliation of Christ should cause that kind of reaction in your life. It should cultivate humility in the church. But it starts in the heart. It starts personally by examining what we love most. Do we love the glory of Christ above our own glory? Do we love the glory of Christ above our own comforts? If so, we can put aside our own pride and selfish ambition and conceit and consider others as more important than ourselves. That's one way we should react. Now, back in Philippians 2 9, B. To 10, we see that number two, God reacts to Jesus' joyful submission in verses 6 through 8. Jesus didn't come to the earth and humble himself with grief in his heart. He came joyfully with his face set as flint to go to the cross. But he did so with joy in his heart. And what he does is he goes to the cross and he is not praised from the cross, is he? Do we see banners waved and people singing hallelujah at the cross? No. We see even the vilest of sinners cursing Jesus to his face right across from him on the other cross. He is not recognized for who he is upon the cross, though he joyfully submitted to this agony. So how does God the Father react to his son's joyful submission to save sinners? God the Father recognizes Him. God the Father bestows on Him a name that is above all names. He gives Him recognition. He gives Him the honor that He deserved and that He did not receive upon the earth. See, what I love about this text is the Jesus that men have cursed and are cursing today will be vindicated by God Himself. God recognized the one who was on the cross. And he recognized his humble submission, his joy that was set in his heart to save the people that God has chosen from before the foundation of the world. And so he recognizes and honors his son, according to this text. In verse 9b, he says that 
God bestowed, or the word is grace. We derive the word grace from this word. Bestowed on Jesus, Him, the name that is above every name. Verse 10 says, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Now, this is where I long for a Greek translation to be in your hands so you can see the fullness of this meaning here, of this text. The name. The should be all caps. Not a name, but the name. Not a proper first name, but the name. The supreme name. God, in light of Jesus' joyful humiliation, recognized Him for who He was. Not only the Savior, but the Lord of all creation. The name that He did not receive praise for here on earth, God the Father will hold before us for eternity. Philippians 2.9, we see that God has done this. God is the one who bestowed this name upon the man, Christ Jesus. He gave him the preeminent name. He gave him the supreme name. The name that is exponentially superior to any other name in all creation. It is the supreme title of titles that God the Father gives to him. It's it's so phenomenal that the Apostle Paul can't even say it yet. He wants to hold off until his thought is through. And so he he sort of ties it to the very end in verse 11 so that it's sort of a doxology of praise when he finally comes to this name. He hesitates here. And he hesitates because he's a Jew. Because a Jew would never take the name in vain. A Jew would never use the name without much care and thought and praise. So Paul reverentially hesitates to tell you the name. The name is not in verses 9 and 10. The name is not there. The name is in verse 11. He hesitates because this name, this name was bestowed on the Most Holy One who was decreed to be the Savior of sinners through the lowliest form of humiliation. That's why he's in awe here. The name, the glorious name, is given to the one who became the lowliest for our sake. And that was God's design before the foundation of the world. You need to think about your salvation for just a minute here. You're saved through the humiliation of God the Son. You're saved according to God's preordained plan, preordained plan that was before the foundation of the world. And in that plan... Our salvation was secured by God the Son who willfully chose to humble Himself upon a cross to redeem God's people. The great and mighty God took on flesh to save sinners like us. And that was God's plan. It was not plan B. It was plan A. It wasn't a reaction to Adam and Eve's sin. It was God's preordained plan. According to 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1, 14. Now what what you need to do is feel the weight of the plan. (laughs) The weight of the plan isn't 
your salvation. It's Christ's humiliation. The way of the plan that should overwhelm us is that God would sacrifice His own Son to show us how glorious Jesus is. See, the plan could have been a lot of, worked out a lot of different ways in my mind. I certainly wouldn't sacrifice my son for sinners. But the love of God is so exponentially greater than ours, undefiled, holy, and righteous, that in his plan, this was the most glorious way to bring sinners to see his magnificent grace. So he says this in Peter chapter 1 and verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Uh, that's the only place I can have faith and hope. I could not hope in myself. I could not hope in my works. I could only hope in God's plan and God's man, Christ Jesus, who God didn't know about before the foundation of the world, but God foreknew, foreordained, that He would be the Savior of the world, that He is the one who put forth this plan in the fullness of time, made it manifest to sinners so that we would be saved and see the glory of God's grace through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. Can you believe this? I hope we all believe this. But I've got to be honest with you, this is beyond my belief on my own. I could not come up with this plan. But this was God's plan. And God has revealed it to us in His words so that we could exalt His worth and testify to His grace through the church. We see this again in, in the book of Acts, chapter 2. Acts, chapter 2, verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's speaking of either Jew or Gentile. Either one can be saved. Men of Israel, hear the word, these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know, this Jesus, notice this, delivered up according to the horizo, the de definite plan, the determined plan, that's what this word means in the Greek, and the foreknowledge, the prearrangement of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Death could not hold Jesus because Jesus was sinless, because Jesus was God. 
our Savior, our substitute. He was sent in the fullness of time to become like us, to redeem us from the curse of the law that we could never obey on our own, that we could never get out from under on our own through our own works. He came and accomplished them for us. He did that according to God's predetermined plan to show us how great His grace is. This should cause a reaction in us, personally and practically. This should cultivate humility. This should, this should make us in awe of Christ's humility. When Jesus comes to the earth and becomes a slave and He serves, He serves wicked sinners every single day that He gets up and wakes up, walks on the, the, the road, and by the way, he's, he's serving sinners all the time. And He's doing so with joy in submission to God's plan so that in the fullness of time, those sinners could be redeemed. By His righteousness. And He's doing that continually and ultimately at the cross so that we could be saved by God's grace who sent His Son to be made sin for us. I mean, can you believe this? This is God's plan. This, in Philippians, is supposed to move the Philippians out of their comfort zone and into courageous Christianity where they're going out into the world like the Apostle Paul declaring the gospel no matter what would happen because God had a plan for them from the beginning. God's plans cannot be thwarted. When He calls us to go and to give our lives as a sacrifice for Jesus, we can do so with joy like Jesus. And we start by submitting ourselves to one another in the church. So are you reacting to Jesus' submission by submitting to one another here in the body of Christ, practically? Considering or counting one another as more significant than ourselves, as more important than ourselves, are we doing that here? When we do that, we're exalting Jesus' work. That's what God the Father is doing here. We're recognizing that Jesus is Lord of our lives when we live like Christ in the church, practically. That's what God the Father wants us to do. All men will eventually testify that Jesus is the one who should be glorified, should be praised, should be honored. Look back with me at Philippians 2. Philippians 2.10. Philippians 2.10 says that He has given this name for a purpose. God the Father graces His Son with this particular name that's above every other name, for a particular purpose, according to verse 10. You see the so that? That's a, that's a purpose clause. There's the purpose that follows after this. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's the purpose of the exaltation of Christ. That's the reaction of God the Father to God the Son's work, is exaltation and bestowing upon Him what He deserves, which is adoration which is praise of all creation. So that at the name of Jesus, at the title of Jesus, every knee would bow, every tongue will confess who He is, what He's done. Now, Paul, Paul can't wait. I mean, Paul is waiting, but he can't wait to get to verse 11. I'm not Paul. I can't wait to verse 11. I'm going to tell you what the name is. When you see the phrase in verses 9 and 10, the name... In the Greek language, that's referring to the definite article. When you see the word the, it's ha, 
the word ha in Greek, okay? It means the and the only or the particular name that God has bestowed upon His Son. This isn't just a name. This is the one and only particular name that God Himself has given to His Son so that all the world would bow before Him and give Him adoration. Okay? It's not the name Jesus. Jesus is a glorious name. But Jesus was a common name. Jesus was a name that many people would have named their children during this time period because it testified to what God would do. God would save His people. But it's the name that is more particular that Paul's talking about here. It's a name that's more of a title that Paul's talking about here. It's the name that was given to our Lord, not in His humiliation, but in His exaltation. Jesus was given to Him in His humiliation. The Son of Man received the name Jesus. But the glorified Son of Man in heaven is exalted to the name that is above all names. And all creation one day will testify to this name by bowing and confessing to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Kurios. Jesus Christ is Master and Savior and Sovereign. They will testify and declare openly and bow continually before the King of glory and say that Jesus is Lord. And the word Lord here is referring to His position as sovereign. The word Lord in this text is the translation of a word from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. It's the word that is used to translate the title of Yahweh in the Old Testament. And when the Apostle Paul uses this phrase in particular by quoting Isaiah 45, verse 23, which is what he's doing here, he is simply saying, that God that's spoken of in Isaiah 45, 23, that's Jesus. He is Lord. And every tongue and every knee will confess and bow before this truth one day. The name Lord here is referring to Jesus' deity and His sovereign authority. Look with me at Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45, 23. God is speaking. He says, By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. God is speaking here. He says, To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. When they translated this, when they would look in this text here in Isaiah 45, and they would refer to the one who's speaking here, he would be Yahweh, and he would be called Lord. And here we have the Apostle Paul quoting this passage to tell us that the knees and the tongues will testify to the truth of who Jesus Christ is because God the Father has exalted Him and recognizing Him, He declares it throughout the world and throughout all of creation eventually and universally in the future. And we should react to that now, practically, here in the present. Because Jesus' title is that He is Lord, He is Master, He is the one in authority, He is the one who is to be honored above all others in the church. He is supremely and absolutely king of the church. And, and everyone in the church should joyfully bow before this name. Philippians 2.10 
And then into verse 11 tells us that ultimately, whether it's by choice or by force, every knee will bow and submit to Jesus Christ as the exalted Lord of glory. Every being will bow and confess. They will all do homage. They will all give honor to our substitutionary Savior. The defiled will declare the truth that we rejoice about every Sunday. Are we rejoicing about it? Are we reacting to it by caring for those that Christ Himself died for in the church, practically? Do we honor one another in honor of the one who saved us and put us together? Do we, do we love one another in honor of the one who loved us and died for us to make us a part of His church? Are we bowing before Him in submission to His leadership and His directions and His commands that we see in Philippians 2, 1 down to verse 5? Do we have the mind of Christ? We need that. Eventually, everyone will see what we see now and praise God for that, but we see it now, so we should respond to it now. We should react to it now. We should rejoice in it now. Because eventually, everyone else will see it. So shouldn't we declare it in our response to Christ? In this text, in verse 10, you see three groups, right? You see that every knee should bow in heaven. That's one group. On earth, that's another group. And under the earth, that's the third group. Each one of these give us a glimpse of the universal praise that Jesus will one day receive. The praise that we can now give Him freely as we gather together as the body of Christ. Group number one. You see them mentioned here as the ones who are in heaven. Every knee in heaven will bow at the name of Jesus. Every knee, every holy angel, every heavenly saint will bow instinctively at the name of Jesus. It won't be, you think I ought to bow, maybe I should obey, maybe I should, I should give Him homage. No. At the name of Jesus, in the presence of Christ, worship is instinctive. It's what we struggle with here when we come on a week-to-week basis. We want to worship Him, but it's not instinctive, is it? No, you struggle getting here on Sunday. You struggled last night trying to decide to be here on Sunday, right? It's not instinctive because we have indwelling sin. We have this carcass, the flesh that drags us down. But here we are, right? Listen, unless the Lord comes quickly, one of us in this room probably in the next 25 to 30 years will be with these heavenly saints in heaven bowing at the name of Jesus. So let's practice now, right? Instinctively. Revelation 5 says that all those in heaven will bow. The angels will bow. The saints in heaven will bow. The babies who have went to heaven will be there bowing before King Jesus. Listen, we hate abortion. We can't condone abortion. No excuse for abortion. It's murder. But to God be the glory for His redeeming love and grace that allows hope for sinners to be saved by grace, by His sovereign power. 
granting a dead sinner faith like he granted to me, granting that to babies and children who will be there around the throne giving glory and homage to Christ. Revelation 5, verse 8. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. That's they fell down in homage to worship him, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain by your blood. You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked... And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice. They're bowing before the Lord here saying with a loud voice worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, So be it. Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped Jesus. That's who this is talking about. All those in heaven will bow at the name of Jesus instinctively. Just, just see this. They see Him on the throne and they begin to sing a new song. They begin to praise His name. They begin to adore Him and they will never cease doing so for all eternity. I want to be with that crowd. Some days I want to be with that crowd way more than other days. Right now, sometimes, you know, we, we go through life and it's difficult and it's hard and, and we just want to, you know, come quickly, Lord Jesus, so I can go to heaven. Well, that's really not the right reason to want to go to heaven because that's pretty selfish just to get out of the pain of this life. Our Savior didn't get out of pain in life, so shouldn't we? No, we shouldn't. But if you want to go to be with Jesus so you can do this, oh, that's a good reason to go. That's a good reason to long for heaven. That's a good reason to long for death. Death has no sting. I do not fear death. I look forward to death. It is the pain reliever. It will bring me to my Savior. In that, I do not fear. And, and I want to be there, not because I want to be out of this life. I want to be in Christ now, adoring Him, so that when I get to heaven, it's just a continued, perfected state of adoration. I'm not there yet, though. That's why we need the Scriptures to sanctify us. There's no way I'm going to get to point three. I'll just tell you guys that, okay? I'd like to. But I want to get through these three groups and then we'll, we'll conclude this morning and we'll pick up again where I left off next week. The, third, or the second group we see that will bow their knee before the Lord Jesus Christ is the group that will be on the earth. That's speaking of both the redeemed and the unredeemed people who live upon this planet. The redeemed and the unredeemed will one day 
submissively bow before King Jesus. Everybody, every single human that's alive when Christ returns will submissively bow before his lordship. Now, the good news is the redeemed, they're redeemed because of God's grace, not because of what they've done, but the redeemed will bow because they begin to bow whenever they were saved, right? When you were saved, that's when you bowed before King Jesus and adored him and loved him and cared for him and wanted to follow him. And when he comes again, you're just going to do this more joyfully, right? You're going to celebrate his coming. You're going to joyfully bow when he comes again. According to what it says in 2 Thessalonians 1. 2 Thessalonians 1.10. 2 Thessalonians 1.10 says, in speaking of Christ's return, when he comes again for his own, speaking of the church, he says this, the redeemed will do this. When he comes, verse 10, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. In other words, when he comes again, he's going to be marveled at. He's going to be received with joy and awe and reverence in those who are being glorified because they were saved. He's going to come to be magnified. You read that text correctly, right? He is coming so that the fullness of Christ will be seen through the glorification of the redeemed. Isn't that amazing? We don't see the fullness of Jesus even in heaven. We see the fullness of Jesus when He returns in glorification. When He comes to bring His bride together. To show to the world and throughout eternity how powerful and how majestic our Savior is. Those people that are living here on this planet that are redeemed on that day, they will marvel at His return and joyfully bow in submission to their Savior. But the unredeemed won't respond the same way. The unredeemed who hate Christ and hate His church will not bow before King Jesus. They will not bow before the Lord now, nor on that day willfully. They bow before the Lord submissively on that day because they will be forced to bow by His authority. Now Jesus comes back. He's coming back as a victor and a warrior. He's coming back as our victor and our defender and the one who will defend his glory will be the one who set it aside for a time. He'll come back and manifest his glory through judgment on those who will not bow to his lordship now on earth. According to the same passage, verses 6 and 9. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Look at that. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. They will not bow willfully. They bow submissively when our Savior comes again. That's the people who will be on the earth that will bow. Now, 
The last category that Paul mentions there in Philippians 2, verse 10, is the people who are under the earth. That's kind of a strange phrase for us. We don't talk about people being under the earth so much, but when you actually think about what it means, it it actually makes a lot of sense. He's talking about those who are under the penalty of of sin, the, the fallen angels, the unredeemed dead that are awaiting final judgment the ones who are awaiting eternal punishment in hell, they will bow. But these, the angels that are fallen and the unredeemed dead that are awaiting judgment, they bow not instinctively or submissively. They bow judicially. They bow judicially because they have already been judged. And their final payment for their sins is coming in hell. It will be bestowed upon them by the one that we call Lord and Savior. It will be bestowed upon them because they rejected Him. Revelation 20 talks about this. Revelation 20 and verse 11. John writes and says, Then I saw a great white throne. This is the great white throne judgment. A great white throne and Him who was seated on it. From His presence... Okay, from the presence of the one who was seated on the great white throne, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Who is this? How glorious is this one? That the earth and the sky would flee in his presence. And then verse 12, he said, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before that throne. He says, the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You remember earlier when I read in John how Jesus was going to call forth the dead one day? This is what it's going to look like. And they're judged, if you'll notice in verse 12, not according to what Jesus did for them, but they're judged according to what they did themselves. They're judged by their own sinful behavior. And they will bow judicially for eternity in hell. So what is our practical reaction to that truth? All creation is accountable to Christ's lordship. All creation will eventually universally submit to Christ's lordship in some form or other. So how are we submitting to Christ's lordship here, presently, in light of this? I mean, the Jesus that saves you is exalted to these positions and He's going to do these things and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess His glory one day. How do we react in our manner of life practically and immediately considering what He's done for us here in His humility? Look with me at Philippians 2, 13 and 14. For it is God who works in you. That's that's part of Paul's whole argument here throughout chapter 1 into chapter 2. It's God who works in you. So how are you going to react? It's God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. How are you going to react? 
You're going to do all things without grumbling or questioning. Why? That you may be blameless and innocent children of God. You're cultivating the work that Christ accomplished. You're bringing it to the surface. You're showing it to the world through your practical ways that you live in the church. When you count others as more significant than yourselves. When you actually count the lost as more significant than your comforts. When you go to them and sacrifice so that you can bring them the gospel of Christ. That's the way we should react. Because one day, those people who are in Revelation 20 will be bowing before the Savior that we love and adore now presently. And we can warn them of the wrath to come. We can warn people of the wrath to come. And by God's grace, those who God has chosen from before the foundation of the world, they will be saved. But He calls us to go out and tell them. He calls us to react to this truth personally in the church, practically in the church, and corporately as we go out to the world, testifying through the church that Jesus Christ is Lord. How can we call Him Lord if we don't do what He says? He gave us the great commission. And it's a great privilege that we've been given this commission. And if we say we love Jesus and we don't love our brothers, if we say we love Jesus and we don't tell the lost about Him, how can we say we truly love Jesus if we don't do what He says? Are we recognizing Him the way God recognized Him if we ignore Him? if we neglect Him, if we don't do what He commands us to do personally, practically, and corporately. So this, this, isn't, a, this isn't a game with God. These are souls of people who will stand before God in judgment or in glory. And we don't know who they are. I don't know who will be saved. I don't know who will be damned. But I know this, that God's put people in my life and in your life that are lost and they need to hear the gospel of Christ. And if God saved me and He called me and He set me apart and He set some unbeliever in front of me, guess what? That's the person who needs the gospel. That's who I'm going to talk to. And I'm going to hope in God that God sovereignly saved me and sovereignly brought the person to me so therefore God can certainly work in such a way that that person will come to faith in Jesus Christ. If I'm faithful, if I'm cross-eyed, if I am focused on the cross, if I am contemplating Christ's humility daily, I will exalt Him practically and personally, and we'll do it corporately. We're called to be Christians, Christ's ambassadors, growing in the knowledge and the wisdom of Christ so we can edify the saints and evangelize the lost. Paul expects us to react to Christ's work. So ask yourself this morning, if you are reacting the way God wants us to react, the way God himself reacted in exalting Christ. Let's pray that God will do that. We can do that. It's actually God's call for us to do that. God has given us the grace that we need to do that through his word and his spirit and his church. So hope in God. He'll make us ambassadors. I didn't ask to be an ambassador anyway. He called me. If he called me, he can quicken me. He can strengthen me. He can guide me. He can direct me. And he can do that with you also. So let's praise God for that. Father, we thank you.
for your word. We thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you for what you have done through the humiliation of Christ to exalt Christ above all others, to exalt the name of Jesus as Lord and Master so that we would see him and bow joyfully and that others one day will see him and bow for eternity before your glory and testify that you are the God who saves. You are the God who redeems. You are the God who is full of grace and mercy and truth. And you manifest that to us through the gospel of Christ. And you gave it to the church so that we can give it to the lost. You gave it to us so that we can exalt Christ through evangelism and edification. So Father, I pray that you would make us as a church faithful. I pray that you would make us personally convinced of the gospel and moved by the gospel practically and corporately so that Jesus would be magnified in the church and in the world around us so that one day when we gather around the throne in heaven, we will sing with all the angels, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive honor and praise and glory forever and ever and ever Amen. Father, that's our prayer today. Feed us this morning on the gospel of Christ. Feed us by your grace so that we could be strong and stand firm in one spirit, laboring together in love, facing our opposition with confidence that you've called us into this life and this ministry for the glory of Christ pray this this morning in the name of the risen Lord Jesus Christ.